Audi. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Biker and travel company owner Antonia Bollingbroke-Kent balances a life of big adventures with producing wonderful TV shows such as Joanna Lumley's Silk Road Adventures. She once drove a pink tuk-tuk from Bangkok to Brighton, did a battle with a thousand semi-wild Mongolian horses in the footstep of Genghis Khan, and nearly froze to death attempting to drive a motorbike and sidecar to the Russian Arctic in the middle of the winter. Often guided by her granny's mantra of do nothing, say nothing until the police arrive, Antonia regales some brilliant travel tales over a cup of tea with me in her Bristol kitchen. is the Big Travel Podcast. We are sitting here in your lovely kitchen, which is all very travelly. You've got maps all over the walls and it looks like your furniture has been shipped back from various places around the globe and hangings and it's all very colourful and lovely. I'm going to start with a story that I have about you, is that it wasn't until I was researching to come and meet you, is that I realised that I read your book when it came out, when you took a tuk-tuk from Bangkok to Brighton, which totally appeals to me because I lived in Bangkok for a long time. I lived in Brighton for a long, long time. And I thought, well, I have to have that book. And I loved the book. And it was such a great journey. And it was you and your friend taking a tuk-tuk from Bangkok to Brighton. Shall we start with that story? Yes, because that is sort of where it all began. Um, So I did it with my friend Jo. And we'd been best friends since we were 12. And then she had really severe mental health problems when she was about 18, very suddenly, and spent a very awful four years in and out of mental health institutions. And when she got better, when she was about 22, she rang me one day and she said, so I want to do something to raise awareness about mental health. And I went to Thailand recently and I fell in love with tuk-tuks and I want to drive a tuk-tuk from Bangkok to Brighton. Will you come with me? And I thought, oh my God, is she better? And so I gave up my job. I was working as a TV producer, ITV. And six months later, we were thundering across the Gobi Desert in Ting Tong the Tuk Tuk. <laughs> so it started in Bangkok. I remember a wonderful chapter about how you found the Tuk Tuk and then driving off and thinking, oh my God, what have we done? Yeah, well, I think it's always the same with any big adventure. You just can't you plan it and plan it and plan it plan it and it was months of organization i think we spent about six months just doing nothing else because we were raising we wanted to raise fifty thousand pounds for mind and we were getting sponsors we'd never done anything like this before um there wasn't huge amount of stuff on the internet then this was 2006 so it was a huge undertaking and then the day we set off i'd actually been in hospital in bangkok for a couple of days i'd just got really ill 
And so I felt like death. And just I remember turning left out of the gates of the British Embassy in Bangkok and thinking, holy shit, what are we doing? We've got to drive to England in this thing. Bangkok does that to you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, even if yeah. you're not setting off to travel the world back on a tuk-tuk. Yeah. What was the most terrifying aspect of doing that? Oh, the most terrifying aspect of that. I think there were times in China which were really scary. China... This sounds a ridiculous thing to say, but China is massive. And all we, although we all know it's massive, it's not until you try and drive across it in a tuk-tuk that you realise quite how massive. We drove across Western Europe in about two days. It took 28 days of driving 14 hours a day to get across China. And we realised when we got there that we weren't allowed to drive three-wheelers on the motorways. But all our visas, which are all incredibly tightly controlled, we had to have a government guide with us all the time, were done on the basis of going on motorways to get through it in time. So we had to drive on dirt tracks for 28 days through China, and it was really dangerous at times. Really dangerous mountain roads, huge potholes, massive rainstorms, there was an earthquake, there were landslides. We were driving really late at night. It was... That was quite hairy, yeah. <laughs> if you had to pinpoint a moment that was the most hairy moment, what was it? I think one night driving really late at night in China, I think it was in Yunnan province, which is in the far south, driving along a very remote mountain road, which had a very steep drop. And it was a sort of pre-monsoon rainstorm and there was lightning and we couldn't really see anything because the lights weren't very good. And I just thought, this is so dangerous. There's so much lightning. It's so wet. I can't see the edge of the mountain. What are we doing? And you obviously made it to safety. But we made it. Yeah, it was it was tough. Tell me your route. So hang on, I'm trying to think. We've got a massive map here, which really helps. But tell me your route. So you're in Thailand. We're in Thailand. We drove direct north from Bangkok for about a week to, to the southern border with Laos, crossed the Friendship Bridge into Laos, Vientiane, um, had a spell under house arrest in Vientiane, something to do with visas, hotel arrest, uh, north all the way through Laos into... Uh, over a border called Mongla into China. A month through China, basically skirting the Tibetan plateau because tuk-tuks aren't that good at altitude. Into Kazakhstan, which at that time no one had been to. Across Kazakhstan, into Russia, in West Siberia, across Russia, Ukraine, and Western Europe. 12 countries, 12,561 miles. What was the point where you felt most elated? Was it arriving home? Actually, I think arriving home, I felt really sad because I just didn't... I remember crying all night the night before we got home because I didn't want it to end. Most elated, I think, crossing the border between China, it was Xinjiang and Kazakhstan, because a lot of people have been saying to us, don't go to Kazakhstan, it's so dangerous, you're going to have your tuk-tuk impounded, terrible things will happen. And it was a really remote border then, a place called Horgos, which is now a big development on the China New Silk Road Initiative. And we got to this border post and they, the guards had just never seen anything like this. And they like opened a safe, they gave us loads of dollars for the charity, they gave us ice creams and they took our photo and we, off we went into Kazakhstan. And we were so elated after that, it was so beyond our expectations, it was awesome. It must have been interesting the way locals did react to you, because you're two young girls on your own. What were you, in your tw- early 20s at the time? We are in our mid-20s. In your yeah. mid-20s. And we looked about eight, we were, you know. <laughs> and we were really immature in every way. And sort of unwashed, and I <laughs> yeah. imagine, and quite messy. Did you stop in hotels? You know, where did you stop along the way? Because we had the tuk-tuk, and we were very precious about it, we generally tried to stop in hotels. So we stopped in cheap hotels. We camped sometimes, we stayed with families. 
I remember sort of trying to hide the tuk-tuk in the middle of the Kazakh steppe when we were camping because there isn't a tree for the sort of a thousand miles and sort of covering it at night with our tent and thinking, you know, hope no one will see the pink tuk-tuk. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you could see it from space, basically. It was so bright pink. But people were just really shocked. They couldn't believe it. No one had ever seen a tuk-tuk before in Central Asia, let alone a pink one with two English girls driving it. People would literally drive us off the road and say, what is it? Where are you going? Who are you? Have a present. Come stay. And did amazing. you go stay? Did you go have that sort of interaction with any other locals? Yeah, we went to stay with people. We went for tea with people. We went for lunch with people. I mean, people were just so kind to us and people just couldn't have been kinder. So what do you think was the most memorable point of that trip? There were so many memorable times. I mean, driving across the Gobi Desert in northwest China, being trapped by a landslide caused by an earthquake in northwest China, having to sleep under the tuk-tuk for two days, ending up doing karaoke with all these other lorry drivers who were trapped. Tell me about the landslide. What happened? There'd been a series of earthquakes in Gansu province, which is northwest China, and it just caused all these huge landslides across the road, which they had to wait for diggers to come and clear. So lots of people had been trapped and just turned into one big party, basically, with this pink tuk-tuk in the middle. <laughs> there's, a, there's a travel writer called Ted Simon, who wrote Jupiter's Travels, and he's got this great saying, the interruptions are the journey, and it's so true, because it's when things like that happen, or when we broke down in Crimea and had to get the tuk-tuk fixed for a week, that's when you meet people and when you have really great interactions. Tell me about the, uh, the Crimea experience. Crimea, which I'm sure everyone has read about in the news in the last few years for all the wrong reasons, is home to the Crimean Tatars, who are sort of descendants of, of Genghis Khan. It's a very different culture there. And the Tartars, again, love the tuk-tuk. We broke down there, the front forks went, and really we should have got them resent from Bangkok, but that would have taken three weeks. So this Tartar mechanic tried to fix it. So we spent about four days there and just hanging out with his family and drinking tea and hearing about the Tartars. And yeah, it, was, it was just brilliant. And he somehow managed to fix it, bodge it together. What about the, uh, the more familiar part of the journey, when you crossed into Europe for the first time, where were you? Crossed into Europe near Lviv on the Ukraine-Poland border and both of us had the same reaction which was that this huge sinking feeling. It was so sort of marked really the transition from people being really friendly and waving and, and I suppose seeing it as something kind of exciting to suddenly we were in Poland and there was a McDonald's and there was a Tesco and everyone was just really busy and going about their daily work and looking sort of grim-faced and we were like back in back in Western Europe. But then as you travelled through from Poland where did you go? You must have got into, obviously at some Poland. point you're hitting France I'm guessing. No we went Poland, we went, I'm looking at the map but we've cut Western Europe off the map. Get rid of it, just yeah. ditch it. Well, there's a doorway in the way, which you had to cut something off, and that's the most This is your big bit. wall map, which yeah. I love, by the way, I really yeah. love it. So we went Poland, Czech Republic, Germany, Belgium, and then took the Eurostar. Uh. So the Eurostar was a great adventure. The Eurostar is my favourite way to travel, it really is. I much prefer it to sort of flying onto the continent. But why was it a great adventure? Because you had the tuk-tuk. Because we had the tuk-tuk and all <laughs> these people were crowding around like, where have you come from? We were like, Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> and then spent our last night in some hotel near Brighton and we drove around the M25 in the tuk-tuk. And we hadn't really bought any warm clothes because we were still sort of driving in our flip-flops with our sleeping bags around us for warmth in this tuk-tuk with the Thai registration plates on it. And people were just like, what is that? <laughs> Did you say you have to drive around the M25? Yeah. Are you, are you even allowed to do that? I'm not entirely sure we were. 
But my granny had this great saying, which was, do nothing, say nothing till the police arrive. So we were going by that. <laughs> Is that how she lived her life? Pretty much. I love it. She, she was a wild Irish lady. Yes. Oh, really? Obviously, she sounds amazing. Yeah. Do you think that's where you've inherited your adventurous spirit from? Partly. I am half Irish, and I, I was brought up in rural North Norfolk, and I always had a very free, sort of adventurous childhood. I've got parents who love travel. They're both in their late 70s. They both still travel a lot. Um, so I think a bit of everything, really. But that was your first great big adventure. Had you done any travel before then? I'd done really standard stuff. I'd gone travelling in Thailand when I was 18, come back with bright green hair. <laughs> I had backpacked on India on my own, but that was the first really big thing. And then after that, I was ruined. You know, once you've tasted overland travel like that, it's so different to anything else, and it's so stimulating and exciting and... I just couldn't go back to a normal job after that, really. Not that I ever really had a normal job before it, but... So you didn't, did you? You've done some great adventures since on motorbikes and all sorts. What was your next step after that? How did you make it happen? Well, I've always sort of done a bit of TV production, so I actually, after that, wrote the book about the tuk-tuk trip. And then I worked for a company called The Adventurists in Bristol, setting up extreme adventures. So I set up the Mongol Derby, longest horse race in the world, 1,000 kilometre horse race. Oh, really? Um, you set it up? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's based on Genghis Khan's postal system, where he'd have messengers riding from Poland to what's now Mongolia in 10 days, and they'd just gallop and gallop and gallop, apparently drinking their horse's blood on the way, oh. and swap every 40 kilometres at sort of these, you know, horse-changing stations. So we set up this horse race based on that, using a 1,000 semi-wild horses, which we'd selected and trained, with 25 riders racing across 1,000 kilometres but changing every 40 kilometres. That's a massive undertaking to organise that. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done. I mean, honestly, trying to find and train these horses from all the nomadic communities in Mongolia and make it happen. I mean, it's still going, though. I'm nothing to do with it now, but it's still going and it's raised so much money for charity and it pays the nomads really well, so it's been a real success, but it was tough. I tell you, after that, everything seems easy. Did you go and do it yourself? I didn't do it, but I went and managed it for, for the first two years. So for the adventurists, I did various things like that for them. Set up a car rally from London to Cameroon and a motorbike adventure in Siberia in midwinter. Nearly died. It was minus 37 when we tested that. Is this the one you did down the river? Up the frozen river, river. Up yeah. the river. Up the river, Ob. Yes. Tell me about that. That sounds crazy. I'm not a big fan of cold, I have to admit. Well, neither am I. <laughs> So Tom Morgan, who runs The Adventurist, and Buddy, who does lots of stuff at The Adventurist, is also a Channel 4 presenter. I went with them, and the idea was to buy an old Russian Ural motorbike and try and get it up to the Arctic Circle in midwinter up this frozen river. And Tom and Buddy are both completely fearless. They lack the fear gene, and they both wore tweed all the way. And <laughs> I spent Why? the whole time thinking I was going to die. <laughs> Why were they wearing tweeds? Were they sort of in so we sort of to like 1940s? Well, we were sort of making a film about it and the whole thing about the adventurists is sort of not taking ourselves too seriously and wearing proper adventure gear. It's like just fun, really, having a laugh. So. I do hope you were in like a massive Arctic zip-up furry thing. I was in, yeah, I was not in tweed because I would not be here today, but it was, it was a real adventure and we stayed with all these communities up this frozen river Ob who were cut off in the outside world for most of the year, really. And they were so friendly. They hadn't seen outsiders before, and 
they gave us these huge frozen fish to take with us on the motorbike and knitted us things and <laughs> you just sort of put it over your shoulder as you yeah. oh the bloody frozen fish we had to take it with us yeah so did you have a bike each were you we had one, one as well? Ural, which are these old Russian motorbikes and with a sidecar so two on the bike one on the sidecar and actually the Ural was so bad that ironically it kind of kept us alive because we had to push it every time it broke down which was about every half an hour and that kept us warm that sounds like a really arduous journey what was the best bit of it going home <laughs> <laughs> remind me again while you were doing it you're filming it but was there some sort um, of competition what were you doing so about? i was working for the adventurists and we were testing whether we could set it up as a new adventure and, could and you? i think they still run it as an really? adventure actually people pay to do people this people pay to do this stuff <laughs> i imagine for a bike enthusiast for someone who doesn't you know that's going to be an amazing a really well just for someone who sort of wants to have an extreme adventure sort of in a slightly comedic sense. The big people that gave you the big fish, what were they, where were they living? Were they living in huts or...? They were living north of a place called Hantimansisk. They were from the Hanti people and they were living in wooden houses by the river and they were fishing and hunting communities. And they travelled up the frozen river in winter, but all summer it was just sort of swampland and there were no roads, so winter was actually the best time to travel. And they had no running water, no sanitation. It was really simple life, but they were just lovely. We drank a lot of vodka there. <laughs> yeah, to keep you warm and keep yeah. you sane, I yeah. imagine. <laughs> yeah. um, and we always made films about these. Um, we, when we did these test trips, we were called the Institute of New Adventure Research. So, and we always made little films about it. Well, that would sound like quite a traumatic, but wonderful and memorable experience, but quite hard nevertheless. What was your next trip after that? So after that, I decided that I wanted to go freelance again. I didn't want to work full time. I wanted to write more books. And I realised that the only way I could write books was to go back to working in television production so I could work freelance. So work really hard on a TV production for, say, five months, save money and then write books in between. That's what I've been doing since, really. I produced a few episodes of World's Most Dangerous Roads for BBC, produced Joanna Lumley's India and Silk Road series. Oh, did you? Amazing. Did you have to go? Yeah. yeah. Did you? How was that? Oh, amazing. Loved that series. Oh, it was amazing. Oh, she's wonderful. Oh, she's brilliant. She's such a good travel companion because she is genuinely a great traveller and loves it and is really curious and, and really kind and we got to go to some fantastic places. And also she's got personal connection, hasn't she? To yeah, so with, with both of them actually she had personal connection and she's very well read about it and yeah, that was really good fun. What's and it like being on the road with Joanna? Oh, it's fantastic because I, we always all work with the same crew. So I've worked with the same crew since 2011 doing Dangerous Roads or we did a series with Tom Hardy. It was about elephant and rhino poaching. Oh, really? Oh, I haven't seen that. So there's Tom. Where is he? In the jungle? In the jungle. <laughs> How was that? Oh, no comment. <laughs> really? The crew are lovely. <laughs> really? No, I have I have had some contact via other people with Tom, and that's an interesting thing. It's a good job we're not on camera. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is, thank goodness we went back to John Lumley afterwards. Oh, really? <laughs> um, so funny. But TV's great because it, it's, you know, writing is quite a lonely thing. You know, you're spending months alone in a, in a hut or a room writing, and TV is... It's the complete opposite. In between the TV trips, I did my own adventures. My next book, and the first book I wrote on my own, was doing a solo journey down the remains of the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Vietnam. Tell me about the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I've been to Ho Chi Minh. I've never done any trail. So the Ho Chi Minh Trail 
was a military supply route that was used by the North Vietnamese during the Vietnam War to take men and supplies from the North into the American back South. And it was basically what enabled them to win the war. And it started off as a single footpath in 1960, like literally men carrying weapons to the Viet Cong in the South. By the end of the war, it was 12, a 12,000 mile network through the jungle. And it's, it is what allowed them to, to beat the Americans. All these years later, 50 years after the war, it's, there's the remains of this trail that still finger its way through Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. A lot of it's disappeared and it's still really heavily contaminated with UXO. And so I wanted to follow what remained of it before it was too late, using old military maps and interviewing people from both sides. Uh, so that took two months, a lot of research. It was pretty dangerous. It was very remote. <laughs> I had a few near misses with cluster bombs. Tell me about a near miss with a cluster bomb. I don't know where to start with it. Well, because the Americans were so keen to cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they knew if they stopped these supplies getting through to the south, they'd win the war. Uh, they bombed Laos on average every, every eight minutes for almost a decade. Millions and millions of tonnes of UXO, and loads of it's still there. So there's just um, unexploded ordnance everywhere in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. A lot of it is being cleared slowly. But where I was going, these really remote tribal areas, the war was still everywhere. I'd go down these jungle tracks, there'd be bomb craters, there'd be bombed out trucks, there'd be houses built on cluster bomb casings, there'd be canoes made out of crashed American aircraft. So you'd be really careful, and I, I did nearly tread on a cluster bomb in the woods. How did you know you'd missed it, and what happened? Have you got a guide with you? I was actually with these two 75-year-old former American pilots I'd met up with for a few days, and we were foolishly trying to reach this old gun emplacement in the jungle and had gone off the track, and you should never walk off the track there. And I was at the front, and I just looked down just in time, and there was a cluster bomb, which looks like a, a rusted tennis ball, about the same size, and it was just in front of my foot. And they're still alive all these years later. I mean, we would have all been dead. So what did you do? Stop! <laughs> Tell everyone to get back on the track and be a lot more careful from then on. Is this, I mean, you do, when you go to Cambodia, not so much in Thailand, but you do see a lot of children with missing limbs and, mm. you know, accidents have happened, haven't they? Oh, I mean, so I did that trip in 2013, and at that point, 400 people were still being killed each year in Laos by unexploded bombs. And I met quite a few people who had lost sons, husbands, wives, just because... They're very poor people in the area. They're going out into the fields with their buffalo to plough the land. Their plough hits a bomb and they're dead. So it's really dangerous. So what was, the, what was the book about? What was the thinking behind the book? That I wanted to trace what remained of the Ho Chi Minh Trail before the most remote bits disappeared, to tell the story of the trail, but through my own journey, to go to areas really that other people didn't go to. So it was called A Short Ride in the Jungle, and it, it was a really tough journey, but it was just, it was so interesting hearing about the war and seeing these remote areas and seeing the impact the war was still having on people. So yeah, I loved it. 45, 50 years later, would it 50 be? Yeah, 50 years, years later. later at that point. 50 years later, yeah. And were you on a motorbike at the, the ride? I a motorbike. Yes, that's incredible. I on bought, your own? On my own. I bought a very old motorbike called the Pink Panther. It was 25 years old, it cost a couple of hundred quid. It broke down so many times. I had four new engines on that trip. 
it did not like the modern mountains of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So you feel kind of cool though when you're, you know, solo female traveller rising through the jungle and off the track, you know, hopefully not too much off the track near the cluster bombs, but yeah. on your motorbike. That's, that's a quite a, a dream for many people and it's a, a dream that not many people will achieve. Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting. You know, every day was so stimulating and exciting and unknown and at times scary, but those are the sort of journeys that, that just make me come alive. I feel so happy when I'm just stimulated and alive doing those trips. What is it about you you think that makes you want to push yourself and do these journeys? I think it's always, always been in me. I suppose I'm a very curious person. I know when I was a child my mother used to call me the Spanish Inquisition because I was always asking questions and always wanting to know what's around the next corner and, and just always wanting to yeah, explore I suppose. We talk a bit on this podcast with quite a few people that I've had on about that sort of human urge to see what's around the next corner and to mm. see what's over the other side of the mountain. And part of that could be a survival thing that we've inherited from long ago ancestors who did have to move on, who did have to see what was around the next corner or over the mountain because they needed to feed, to live, to, mm. to survive. Yeah, I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, of course, because you would have had to peer over the mountain to see whether there was a saber-toothed tiger or whether there was better grazing for your animals. Maybe it's from that. You know, even if it's in Bristol, you know, I always like to go and do something new or try something new or see an area I haven't seen before. It doesn't have to be going to the other side of the world. It's just trying to do new things and always look at the world with fresh eyes. Absolutely. We had adventurer Alistair Humphreys on the other week and he's a big fan of, you know, he, he explored the world and did all the crazy things and then realises actually when he had a wife and family it wasn't so easy to do. But he's a massive fan of micro-adventures mm. and, you know, will go out and camp of a night, you know, up a hill behind his house or, mm. you know, just on a Monday or a Tuesday for no reason whatsoever, go and climb a tree, go and walk around the M25, which was a weird one, back to the M25, encouraging people and himself and his family to live more adventurously in mm. day-to-day life mm. to feel more alive I guess yeah no I know Al yeah and I love his idea of micro-adventure and it's one of the great things about Bristol is you've got very good access to countryside so Marley and I we've got a motorbike and like on Monday we went to Clevedon swimming in the sea and we go walks walking in the evenings we just just try and get as much out of life as possible and not waste it watching television. You and your boyfriend Marley have a business together and that that is all about adventures. Tell us a little bit about the business. Marley and I have a business together called Silk Road Adventures and it grew really organically out of our love of adventure. Marley loves travel and adventure and he lived in Nepal for a year and he spent quite a lot of time building portable sauna and towing it around Europe to music festivals and (laughs) yeah he loves adventures and sort of creating unusual things and so and we're both bikers we started by doing motorbike trips in Tajikistan in in Central Asia and the company has grown out of that really and we both love the Silk Road and Central Asia and, and all those sort of adventure books about the great game and and we also love traveling in places where there aren't that many other travellers where it's still kind of fresh and exciting. You can really get off the beaten track. So where are those places? Well, there's many places like that in the world, I think, contrary to popular belief. But we specialise in Tajikistan, uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, northern Afghanistan, and then Jordan and Palestine and Iran and Georgia and the Caucasus. So 
you know, the Silk Road, like the Ho Chi Minh Trail, was a, a sort of skein of, of tracks connecting China with Europe. So we focus on where that went, really. One of your most recent books was about a journey you made around India. Yes. So my most recent book was called Land of the Dawnlit Mountains, and it was about a three-month solo journey I made across uh, the very northeastern corner of India, a place called Arunachal Pradesh, which translates as Land of the Dawnlit Mountains. Um, and for really political reasons, which are way too boring to go into here, it was closed to foreigners until 20 years ago, and it's still very heavily restricted, and you have to get permits. And just, it somehow remained this invisible fold, which just no one goes to. I took quite a long time to prepare for it. it, took about two years to get the right permits and everything, and I spent three months travelling across it by foot and motorbike. And it's the most ethnically diverse place in South Asia, 30 different tribes. Yeah, that was quite an adventure. <laughs> what was the standout moment? What was the most adventurous bit? Anything that particularly stands out to you? The whole place is so remote. It's in the Himalayas. It's the wettest place in the world. There's different tribes living in every valley. And I met one tribe called the Idu Mishmi people who are animists still. And animist is they don't worship a single god. It's not monotheism like Christianity or Islam. They worship hundreds of different spirits, some good, some evil. So this chair would have a spirit, that plant in my garden would have a spirit, everything has spirits. Why and would you need to call upon the spirit of the chair? Like if the if the chair was broken, would you be calling upon that spirit? Or just if you want a nice sit down? It's just sort of, basically they live in this very complicated and often very terrifying existence with constantly trying to appease this pantheon of spirits. There's a lot of animal sacrifice involved, sacrificing animals as sort of gifts. Like I tell you what, Spirit of the wind, who we're terrified of. If we sacrifice these six pigs, then you'll be kind to us and you won't destroy our crops this year. And when I was with the Edu Mishmi, I met this girl who was the first girl from northeast India to climb Mount Everest, an Edu Mishmi girl. And she told me that her clan were having this very rare festival over the next few days in a tiny village up in the mountains. And it was five days of animal sacrifice and shamanic chanting. And she said, Well, you've got to come, obviously. And it was quite an adventure getting there because there'd been landslides blocking the roads for the last few days. There was no telephone reception up there. This girl couldn't come with me, so she somehow had to get a message to one of her clan members that there was a random foreigner coming. Anyway, I managed to get there, and it was this tiny village up on the Tibetan border, about 10 wooden huts sewn into the mountainside. And I was hosted by this family. No one could speak any English. They hadn't seen outsiders before. And I spent three days there. It was, I'm, I'm vegetarian, I should probably add now. And it was basically a massive bloodbath. It was like sort of Glastonbury, but with a lot of blood and <laughs> I was gore. going to say about Glastonbury, when you said about five days of Well, it was five days with debauchery, basically. But sort of, you know, they were all smoking these big opium bongs and flagons of rice wine. And I mean, everyone was absolutely shit-faced and sacrificing all these blood tripping over the guts <laughs> and all these poor animals being sacrificed um, these big they're called mithin they're like oxen that live in that part of the world and pigs and all at the centre of it were, was this shamanic chanting these three shamans who just sat and they sang and they sang and sang for five days and they were offering up the souls of the sacrificed animals to the gods God that sounds like one serious trip 
Yeah, it was it was incredible, and they couldn't understand why they didn't never met a vegetarian before. They were like, didn't know what to feed me. I sort of ate leaves for five days, picked from the roadside, <laughs> yes, exactly. covered in sacrificial blood. Yes, yeah, exactly. But they were so kind. The Edu Mishmi, they were like everyone I met on that journey, just so welcoming and sort of really delighted that someone was taking the time to tell their story. And they've got so many fantastic creation myths, which. I then spent time with the shamans and a translator telling me all these creation myths. and Yeah, it was, it was a trip. Did you try the, the, the opium pipe? I didn't. I have tried opium before. I had a very bad experience. I decided I didn't want to spend five days vomiting under the shaman's hut. Tell me about the first time you tried opium. I was 18. I was in Thailand. I spent several days vomiting under a hut. <laughs> Sounds wild. Oh, thinking, I'm never doing this again. As much as I'd love to be trying it again, I just thought that was probably a sign. You've got a trip coming up with the Royal Geographical Society. Now, I always sort of picture them as like this big, fusty old room full of moustached old men, you know, sort of like dusting off their suits and sitting there. And I'm sure it's not like that at all. I'm sure it's like very modern and up to date. Tell me about the the, the society and the trip. What's, What's going on? So the society is in Kensington. And I think it's funny, I think people really have this impression of the RGS that it's very exclusive and you can't get in. But actually, anyone can become a member and it's really easy to become a fellow. And they do all these amazing lectures all year round. And they've got wonderful map rooms and libraries. And actually, there's a lot of young people. I'm sort of young still, am I? <laughs> I'm not an 80-year-old man, anyway. <laughs> and they give out these grants every year. And I was very fortunate to win something called the Neville Shulman Challenge Award this year and be given a grant to do an expedition, very much inspired by my last trip, actually, to remote northeast India and northwest Burma and travelling through the lands inhabited by the Naga tribes, who are former headhunters. Very interesting tribe because they fought for the British against the Japanese in the Second World War. One of the people who led them in the jungle was a British woman called Ursula Graham Bauer, um, who's still the only female British commander in the history of the British Army. I am going back to there to travel through their lands. Very, very remote and difficult to get to and tell the story of the Nagas today, really. Definitely former headhunters, then. Well, yes, definitely former, but... I mean, I've read lots about them. I'm reading about them all the time. There's sort of thoughts that in the in the, the Burma area, Myanmar, I should say, it happened until 20 years ago. So that sounds like an amazing trip. Yeah, I think it it will be. I mean, I just that corner of the world really appeals to me, and places that are sort of at the edge of the map, not in a geographical sense, but you know what I mean, that people don't really know about, really appeal to me, and where I'm telling stories that haven't been told before. Where's the one place that you really want to go that you haven't been? Northern Pakistan, I really, really want to go to. Yeah, that's the number one. Northern Pakistan, I think. And there's still lots of corners of the Silk Road. Uh, Lebanon, I would absolutely love to go to Lebanon. I was listening to the writer Diana Dark talking about the Baalbek ruins in Lebanon the other day, and and I was immediately looking up thinking, God, I want to go there. I've always wanted to go and never managed to get around to it. Mm. And to stay in the Palmyra Hotel, where oh. sort of people like Nuri have used to stay, and is now being done up again. Yes, yes. Um, and apparently safe to go to now. Yes. I mean, I was in Jordan a few months ago, which is right next door, and it's so safe. And the people in that part of the world, the hospitality is just incredible. 
Well, I could chat to you forever, but I've got to end it somewhere. So my last question is always about music, because to many people, music and travel go hand in hand. And if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time of place and travel, what would that song be? Oh, my God, I, I am such a music lover, and now you've put me on the spot. I and love I this literally question. cannot think of anything. I, can't, I probably um, couldn't answer it myself, actually, because I'm the same. God, that's, that's a really difficult question, but... What immediately springs to mind is when I was doing my last trip through Arunachal Pradesh. You know, I was often having really long days on the motorbike and I was tired and, you know, on a solo journey, your mood goes up and down. Sometimes I would stop if I was sort of feeling tired or a bit low and I'd put on my headphones and jack up the volume and I'd listen to Ooh Wee, which is by Ghostface Killer and Mark Ronson. And I'd literally stand in the road and dance and hope no one could see me. <laughs> Did anyone see you? Uh, probably, but not that I ever saw. They're probably still sniggering about it today. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Antonia. All the best with the Silk Road adventures and more. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. We'll be back next week with more wonderful tales of travel. See you then. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.